And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. We are going to be diving in with a pretty exciting guest that's coming into our studios today to just kind of share his background and his uh, vast wisdom in Adventist history and historiography specifically. Michael, why don't you tell everybody who we're going to be talking to today? I'm just delighted to introduce Donald R. McAdams who is a longstanding historian within the Adventist tradition. Uh, He comes richly prepared with a PhD uh, in religious history from Duke University. Uh, And I also take a personal interest because I teach Adventist history at Southwestern Adventist University. And Dr. McAdams is one of our former presidents, I believe from 1975 to 1984. I was talking to a few of our long-standing our veteran faculty on campus and we were having a discussion because we just had a a new presidential search a new president for our university and i was listening in on a conversation who was the best love president in the history of our institution and hands down uh, dr mcadams your name was mentioned as a relational president you loved your students and yet you held very high academic standards and so I uh, just want to thank you for your exemplary leadership as well as your scholarship. We could go on talking about other things, uh, which we will. We're going to talk about some of the articles you've published, some of your work in the field of Adventist historiography, but a word of, of warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. Well, let's uh, just dive right in and would, you know, just tell us a little bit about how you became interested in history. I know you went to Duke. How did did you decide that you knew you wanted to be a historian? Well, in some ways, I would attribute that to uh, Joseph Grady Smoot. Okay. Uh, I I loved history when I was young. Uh, During my high school years, I would walk to the public library, check out three books, usually history. And uh, then they were due in two weeks, so I had to take them back. And then I would have an opportunity to check out two or three more. And I think uh, during my high school years, I read a whole lot more that I got from the public library than I did from the assignments at Tacoma Academy and Tacoma Park, where I was a student. Uh, So I entered college already addicted to history and, you know, fairly well read for an 18-year-old. Uh, But I was planning on uh, becoming an attorney. So my goal was law school. And that continued to be my goal until the beginning of my junior year. We had a new professor on campus, Grady Smoot, uh, from the University of Kentucky, not quite finished with his PhD yet. And Grady was a really good teacher and a very inspirational person, I would say more than anybody else other than my parents, he's been the major influence in my life. He was a mentor and uh, his history courses were really interesting. And he pointed out to me that I could actually get a job where people would pay me to read history and talk about it. And I thought, what a deal. You mean that people will just pay me to read this history and talk about it? So I abandoned thoughts of law school and instead applied for graduate school in history and ended up with a, uh, a grant to go to Duke 
that paid my full tuition and living expenses for my entire experience at Duke. Wow. So how could one say no to that? <laughs> uh, and uh, I would say Duke was challenging for me. Uh, I, I was good at what they had taught me to do at Columbia Union College, uh, which was to read history books, understand them, write good reviews, and write essay questions. I really had no training in research and uh, understanding really what the difference was between just putting together a bunch of facts and really understanding the past with a thesis and some you know, presentation of evidence to support that thesis. So I, I found graduate school very exciting. Uh, I chose British history, spent a year in London gathering material for my dissertation. I wrote on 18th century British politics. What actually got me started in Adventist history was that uh, my second year there, uh, I was taking a course in uh, the French Revolution. My, my, my areas of specialty were 18th century British history, French Revolution, American history, uh, and then also I had a field in uh, 20th century Russia. So I was taking a course in the uh, French Revolution from a professor named Francis Ackham. And at the same time, the local Durham church was having an evangelistic series by an evangelist named Archer Livengood. And uh, being a good loyal Adventist and enjoying my relationships with the small Durham church, about 60 members, I went to the meetings, even took one of my friends, got a, a couple that lived near us, uh, a young man getting a PhD in physiology. And uh, Elder Lion Good got up front and started talking about the French Revolution one night, and he was just wrong on the facts. So afterwards, I went up very politely and said, you know, Elder Lion Good, very interesting in all this, but your comments on the French Revolution, some of them are just factually not true. He said, come with me, young man. He took me to his travel trailer which he had behind his uh, behind the church. He was a one-man show. He and his wife, she played the piano, he sang, he preached. Uh, and he pulled Great Controversy off the shelf and read to me directly from Great Controversy the things he had been saying. And right off, I knew there was a problem. And I knew that someday I would need to get into that and figure it out, but it was for later. That's when I first realized that Adventist history uh, was really unknown and there was a lot of work to be done. Um, so I ended up at Andrews University, and I had the good fortune of being there in the 70s. Uh, I arrived there in 1967, and uh, Andrews University in the, in the late 60s and 70s was a really exciting place to live. And in many ways, it, is the, it was the beginning of what you might call modern historiography in the Adventist church. And a great many of the historians who have worked in the field since were there at Andrews at the time. Uh, Gary Land, uh, Eric Anderson, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ben MacArthur, John Butler, uh, Ronald Numbers. These were all either colleagues or students or, or seminary students who were friends. Roy Branson was there. Spectrum was founded. Uh, uh, and the 70s were a really pivotal decade in Adventist historiography. Tremendous amount of work done there. And, the, and in fact... Uh, there really wasn't another generation of Adventist historians, I think, until uh, the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, the 80s, 90s, not a lot of action. 
Uh, but in more recent decades, once again, thanks to George Knight and others, um, there has been a flowering, I think, of, of research and publication in Adventist history, uh, though, though there are still just enormous gaps. Yeah. Well, this kind of is a natural segue because, you know, the I think the article you're most famous for, the first article I ever read by you is this this article that you eventually uh, delve into the French Revolution. Kind of tell us that next step, because you you do go back and study that what Ellen White writes about the great controversy, right? Yes. What happened at Andrews was that um, there was a tremendous intellectual ferment in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Adventist Church had created a university. What did that mean? And there were a large number of young PhDs uh, on campus, uh, PhDs who had been trained at premier universities around the country. And uh, we were all talking to each other. And uh, these these conversations came up. Uh, And in fact, in my uh, my own teaching, I had students, you know, raising questions because I I was teaching English history. as well as uh, you know, world civilization and French Revolution, and uh, you might recall. Uh, well, you wouldn't recall. You all are too young. But uh, when Spectrum came out in a very early, I think maybe in the very first uh, number, Roy Branson and Harold Weiss wrote an article calling for research into Adventist history yeah. and specifically into Ellen White. Yeah. So there was a lot of interest, and. Uh, it's a long story and I don't want to let take a lot of time, but as a result of my reading and preparation for my uh, courses in, in British history, uh, I did some reading on the English Reformation uh, from a modern historian, and it was very much focused on the religious changes that had been taking place. And it, it described the English Reformation as really a religious movement. And, you know, the view that I'd been raised with was, you know, it's all about Henry VIII and his wives and you know, it's all about economics and sort of a, you know, a secular explanation. And I found that very interesting. And I thought, well, you know, Ellen White was right on that. So I first started researching Ellen White's, uh, uh, you know, dealing with the English Reformation and discovered that she had taken it all from Daubenet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I decided to do another sample and I picked uh, the Bohemian Reformation, John Huss. And uh, again, lined up, uh, in this case, double columns and discovered that she had taken that almost entirely from James A. Wiley's History of Protestantism. And um, meanwhile, I was having conversations with colleagues. My colleague, Bill Peterson, uh, ended up writing a very interesting article on Ellen White's uh, use of history and her accounts of the French Revolution. And there was just a lot of action going on at the time. So uh, I think my my real and probably only serious contribution to Adventist history was the uh, manuscript I prepared called Ellen White and the Protestant Historians, which has never been published. Uh, It's about 300 pages long, and it lines up the uh, source, Wiley, with the original handwritten holograph uh, that Ellen White wrote uh, in her own hand, and then on the third column, uh, what was published in Great Controversy. And what's really interesting there is not only the, the borrowing, the sequence, <clears throat> but also the fact that her literary assistant, Marion Davis, felt the freedom to delete large portions of what Ellen White had written and add additional portions directly from Wiley. 
I'm not talking about just sentences here or there, but paragraphs, pages. And so I realized that both Ellen White and her assistant both agreed, understood that Ellen White was not writing stuff that she had seen first in vision and was just finding a historian who had worded it artfully. Uh, Ellen White was perfectly happy with Marion Davis adding lots of ma new material from Wiley and Marion Davis felt comfortable deleting material Ellen White had taken and, and adding additional material. Uh, the book was being prepared for publication to a non-Adventist audience. Call porters were going to sell it door to door. And both of them realized they wanted a book that would be a, a readable and, and something that people would buy. And uh, so I wrote that. And by the way, just as an aside, at last it is going to be published. Uh, Oak and Acorn uh, Press in California uh, has agreed to publish it. And uh, I've been working on it in the last couple of years. Uh, it is going to be a vast improvement over the original paper because it is the original paper, but it shows you the changes I made in the original paper at the request of the White Estate. It also includes uh, uh, the publications by, El by Arthur White, which were responding. And um, mm. you might say that it shows that there was a very reluctant reception uh, uh, to my work. And uh, the only reason I didn't publish it in the years that followed is that I had promised Arthur White when he agreed to let me transcribe the Ellen White uh, manuscript, the Huss manuscript, I had promised him that I wouldn't publish it. And I've kept my word, but I've gotten a release from the White Estate now to publish it. And I found a publisher and it's slow, but hopefully the book will come out in a year or so. And uh, hopefully people will read it. And once and for all understand how Ellen White used historians and why her use of historians was not inconsistent with her claims. However, quite inconsistent with many of the claims made about her work mm -hmm. uh, by her son, W.C. White, and by the church generally right up through the 1970s. And I'm not sure if the church has yet generally recognized the fact that Ellen White is not an authority on history and you can't cite her writings to prove a historical point one way or the other. I, I have dug around uh, and I was looking at some of the the big uh, articles and papers that you've been writing, Dr. Adams, and that was the one that honestly caught my attention the most. I saw it uh, referenced in a couple of different areas. And uh, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit, what what do you think has kept the the reception of this kind of an idea that Ellen White is not a historical source uh, that she never claimed to be? What do you think has kept that from being welcomed by the church uh, at, at large? I think, I think it's the issue of authority. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Tacoma Park, Maryland. My father was a general conference officer, uh, director of the publishing department. Uh, you know, I, I was, the, the Adventist church is like my extended family. And uh, I was raised uh, very firmly with the view that everything Ellen White said was authoritative. Mm. Her comments on science, on you know family relationships, on religious theological points, uh, on history, everything was authoritative. And in any kind of a discussion, if there was a question, people would say, "Well, here's what Ellen White says." End of discussion. No one, no one felt comfortable saying, "Well, maybe she was wrong." Uh, so um, when I wrote that paper. Uh, it was clear to anybody who would just read it with any kind of care that 
she was not an authority on history. And if she's not an authority on history, it raises the question, well, maybe she's also not an authority on science. And, oh, well, where does that end? Mm. And I think that issue of authority is the issue that, that really stuck. So when the white estate and the official church responded, I thought, you know, my view was not that I had a problem. My view is that the church had a problem, and I was presenting them with a solution to that problem. And that is to go back and look at Ellen White's own behavior uh, and, and her own comments at the time. And I, I will say, I think she was sometimes a little less candid in admitting how dependent she was on sources, but that's not, un, that's a very human thing to do. Uh, and uh, I thought that once this evidence was there, the church would take the lead in gradually educating its membership, mm. but it did mm. not. Uh, the 1919 Bible conference was a missed opportunity to educate the church. The church leaders at the time understood the reality. Uh, the church backed away from that because it was afraid that it would, you know, stir up too much hostility, I suppose, from the, uh, if I might call it, the, the right wing of the church. And then there was another opportunity in the 70s. And it wasn't just my work. It was Ronald Numbers. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of people writing Ellen White uh, studies in the, in the 70s. And the church had a second opportunity to uh, begin to educate its membership as to, you know, the, real, the reality of her, of her gift. Uh, inspiration uh, is a word. How do you define it? Well, I think you have to define it uh, with the facts that are uh, established. And uh, the church backed away from it that time, too. And in the book that I'm going to publish, you will see uh, the, my paper in its context as well as the church response. And you will see that the, that the church leaders were admitting as little as they possibly could in the most guarded and opaque language, and then dropping the subject completely. And now here, almost another 50 years later, if you think about it, it was about 50 years from the 1919 Bible conference to the 70s. It's about almost another 50 years from the 70s to now. And once again, this issue is coming up. Um, I, th I think the uh, direction was pointed really by George Knight in his book, Ellen White's Afterlife, mm -hmm. uh, in which he really documents very clearly the view her contemporaries had yeah. and the view that was propagated in the Adventist church after she died. And, you know, by the way, historically, this is not that unusual. Uh, movements frequently take the founding generation and raise it on a high pedestal to justify uh, their legitimacy. You can see this in the Soviet Union. Uh, after Lenin dies, what does, the, what does the Communist Party do? They, they make him practically a saint, build a mausoleum, uh, quote him constantly. Uh, it's a way to legitimize things. And so uh, the, the, uh, the uh, hagiography, if I can, about Ellen White was something that I, get, I think the generation of the, of the teens and 20s and 30s felt it was important to do to legitimize uh, you know, the, uh, the, the gift and her role in the church, uh, but it's unnecessary. So I think authority is the key word there. And I think that's a, that's a challenge for scientists, theologians, and others. It's not my problem as a historian, but as a historian, I can affirm pretty confidently uh, that Ellen White is not an authority. She not only admitted that, she stated it as such. She acknowledges that in a paragraph in the opening of the 1888 Great Controversy, 
and the evidence is simply unimpeachable. Mm. Yeah, you know, and I and I I appreciate the uh, the the fact that you boil this down to the idea of authority, and I think you're I think you're right on. I'm thinking as a pastor here in this moment, and I'm trying to ask why is there such a hesitancy on the part of church officials, church publications, you know, estates, whatever, to to admit that Ellen White never claimed authority on history or science or whatever. And I'm thinking even in my own church evangelistic campaigns, when presenting, you know, the idea of the spirit of prophecy or anything like that, the people who are coming into the church, new fresh believers, are being told and taught that Ellen White is an authority and that they should change their lifestyle based on certain ideas that she's promoted. Um, what, what do we do, you know, when our evangelism is saying one thing to new believers and then all of a sudden we get them in and we're like, oh, hey, actually, uh, you've done all this stuff to change your life, and, but we're really not sure she's an authority. Like, how do we, how do we balance those two things? Well, uh, that is the dilemma, I think, faced in 1919, uh, and it's an issue we need to work through. Uh, but let me say, I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable about what is being taught uh, children in Adventist elementary schools mm -hmm. and high schools today. It's been a long time since I've had that, you know, a source of information. And I'm not knowledgeable about what is being taught by evangelists uh, when they hold series. But if they are putting forward Ellen White as an authority, they are making a mistake. Uh, they, it, it is appropriate to present Ellen White as, as a messenger of the Lord, as someone with a gift, as, uh, as God used prophets of old in key moments in history to you know, rebuke or lead the people. Uh, Ellen White was a very necessary person in the founding of the Adventist church. It wouldn't have existed without her, I don't believe. Uh, and, and she is extremely valuable in many ways, historically and inspirationally and devotionally. Uh, but uh, we've learned a lot about how the world works and we've learned a lot about history uh, in the more than 100 years since she died. And uh, to think that she is going to be an authority on these matters is simply, um, why, why would why would one think she's an authority on these matters? You know, <laughs> it, it's 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 creating an expectation that is not needed, and is in fact misleading. Hmm. Now, yeah, back, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, coming back to 1919, it, it seems to me that you know you're talking about putting Ellen White on a pedestal, uh, and and then also this sort of I call it like a tidal wave of fundamentalism that comes and sweeps the church in the. Uh, the the wake of the 1919 Bible conference. And as you point out, sort of like this missed opportunity. Uh, but this has been also kind of the struggle of, of Adventism through the 20th century, hasn't it? You know, is, is how do we actually, you know, as Greg said, you know, in terms of authority and, and this kind of struggle and, and George Knights described that very well in, in his book, um, you know, this, this seems to be like a tension that has existed and continues to exist, this kind of struggle, right? Is that, does that, am I on track here? Yes, and I think it's important uh, for people to realize that as important as Ellen White is for the founding of Adventism, uh, she's not the only one. Yeah. The Adventist church is a lot bigger than Ellen White. She herself made a point of saying that I only affirm what the brethren in study have already uh, uh, taken from scripture. 
My role is to affirm that. I don't originate it. Uh, and I think that's one of the tremendous values of Adventist history is we see how rich the texture is. Mm. Uh, we would have also had a hard time getting a church off the ground without John Evans Andrews. I, I think uh, 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 Gil Valentine's book on, on Andrews is really a magnificent study. And it shows you his, some of Andrews' conflicts with Ellen White. Uh, she needed him just as he needed her. Yeah. And uh, he was a very significant figure. Of course, James was perhaps the most significant figure early on. And uh, Uriah Smith, a host of others. That's one reason the uh, series of Adventist pioneers that George Knight has shepherded is so valuable. It helps us realize that this was a community effort. There were a lot of people involved, people that are not known so much by the average Adventist today, but I had the privilege of doing a little research on E.R. Palmer and C.H. Jones, uh, really magnificent contributors to the Adventist church. And that's one reason I'm so uh, interested in fostering research and publication in Adventist history. I think as we understand the full church, not just in the 19th century, which is mostly where the historical work has been done to date. Uh, but we have the whole 20th century. And, uh, you know, there hasn't been nearly as much uh, historical writing on the 20th century as I think there should be. Uh, also, we need to broaden, as historians, we need to broaden our scope, as I tried to point out in the paper I wrote for the Adventist historians sometime back, several years back. Uh, we need to broaden our approach, not just uh, to, you know, using narrative history, but uh, using the full toolkit that is now available to us as historians, historians in the 20th century have gone way beyond just writing narrative history. Narrative mm -hmm. history is still appropriate and it's the most fun to read. Uh, but uh, putting history in its broadest context and, and analyzing uh, the various uh, forces at work and is something that we need to do in Adventist history. Uh, we, we need to we need to put Adventist history in context. Yeah, you know, I, I share there, that. There are, as a historian, I will say there are three things that we can use to try to understand the past. Uh, one is human agency. Humans make history by what they say, what they think, what they do. Right. That's important. Another thing is context, the context in which they do it. And the broader the context, the more one understands that the context includes everything from the climate to the, you know, the sociology of the period, the diseases that were flourishing, the technology of the period, what was going on in the, the larger society, what was going on in the larger world. I mean, an example of the importance of context is we talk a lot today about the history of slavery in the United States. Very important topic. How often do we talk about that in the context of slavery worldwide? since the beginning of civilization, right on down through the 19th century, practiced almost everywhere. When you understand US, the, the US slavery experience and the total context of slavery, it's a different picture. When you understand uh, the, the Adventist church in the context of its time and place, it, it, it illuminates significantly what is going on. So, so context is, is a very important point of, of understanding history. And then, of course, there's always what historians call contingency or luck. Sometimes things just happen. Uh, they're small things, but there's the butterfly effect. Uh, and there seems there's no control over that. 
who dies at an, innocent, at an inappropriate time? You know, uh, what storm uh, causes a battle to go the other way? Um, there is chance in history. And I think historians need to understand all of these, and we need to bring all of these uh, insights into our study of our Adventist past. Don, you know, listening to these three different things, I, I guess I have two questions. We're going to, I'm sure, have some people that are aspiring historians will listen to this. And I'd love to hear you just kind of reflect a little bit about where you would like to see future historians. Say a PhD student comes to you now and says, you know, Don, I love your scholarship that you've done, but where, where do you see Adventist history moving into the future? You, you see how this sort of second wave of historians under George Knight and, and others in more recent years has really uh, caused a flowering of history. So that's my first question. My second question is, you know, this whole idea of contingency of chance in history, um, it, it, you know, does that seem to threaten uh, a certain mindset that everything has to be providential? Um, as if, and, and I wonder if we've almost gone into like Calvinism, into this predeterminism within some circles of Adventism. Everything is predetermined by God. Uh, and when maybe that really isn't the case. And and I wonder if we need to draw more in our Arminian heritage that that it's okay that not everything is divine providence. So I guess two questions in whichever order you want to tackle those. Well, uh, on the first question, I do hope that young people uh, will, at least a certain number, uh, will pursue careers as historians and specifically uh, historians of Adventism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the historical profession has fallen on hard times in recent years, I think. Uh, you can see the number of history majors declining uh, in universities and colleges. It does not lead to lucrative employment in most cases. Uh, but there is a need, and I hope that need is met in the Adventist church for young uh, students, bright students, people with you know real talent and dedication to go into history as a profession. It is a lot of fun and it is very rewarding and the church needs that. Uh, the historians may actually do more good for the Adventist church in many cases than the preachers uh, because they, they keep us uh, focused on reality and they help us understand our past. And you can't really understand the present you're in if you don't have some knowledge of how you got here. Uh, so that's my first point, and I and I hope that is happening. I don't know that it is. Uh, we we don't need, need uh, the focus on the Adventist past to just come in, in a few waves. You know, a big wave in the '70s and early '80s, and then another wave in the you know the last 20 years. We need this to be an ongoing, continuous uh, field of research and study. And the uh, the the church archives are really a, a fantastic resource. Uh, and there's a lot of history. It's a global movement. Uh, there's history in every continent, Adventist history on every continent. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the my comment on your first question. Uh, your second point about, uh, uh, what should I say, providence or, or even predestination, uh, I consider the future to be open. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I do, if, if it is all predetermined, uh, what what role is left for me as an individual? Why did why did God make me as an individual with judgment and, Back to and agency. the opportunity? To, a, agency, right? How, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, if if it's all been done and set, and it's just we're just waiting to watch it happen, we're we're bystanders instead of participants. 
And uh, I'm not a theologian. I think Rick Rice and others have explored some of these points, but uh, I think uh, I think uh, the future is open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, in fact, there's some evidence for that, and that is that the Christians have been talking about the future ever since uh, the ministry of Jesus himself, and they haven't gotten it right yet. Mm. Uh, the evidence is uh, that notwithstanding numerous uh, prophecies and uh, hopes, uh, we are still here. And uh, so I think there's evidence that it's open in addition to the fact that sort of philosophically it makes sense to me that it, that, that it must be open. Uh, and so uh, how, how it all ends, uh, I have views that are general, but they're not specific. If you read the last, if you read the last chapters in Great Controversy, uh, the end time is all happening in the United States, and it's all happening when Protestantism and Catholicism are in a sort of a death struggle. Um, I wonder what sense that makes to someone living in uh, the 21st century in the Middle East or in China. Uh, you know, uh, so it it seems to me we have to be open. Uh, and, and I think philosophically, that's where I, that's where I am. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that very much. Greg, do you have a question? I, I know you've got a class in a little bit, so. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually, uh, I was kind of wondering just from your own perspective, you've had a chance to see a lot of, of stuff going on in the last 50 years of Adventist history and all the different twists and turns. Uh, what do you think is maybe the most impacting uh, elements over these last years for historians in the church? And where do you think we could head in terms of research uh, to make uh, at least comparable impact in the future? Well, that's a hard question. Uh, <laughs> I, I really don't know what is available in the uh, General Conference archives. Uh, but I know there is a huge amount of material there. Uh, and there are also uh, collections now at PUC and at Andrews and other places. I think Adventists are much more inclined uh, to keep records. I myself have deposited a bunch of my records with the Southwestern Adventist University Library. Uh, in case anyone ever wants to write a history of the, of the college, there's going to be some, you know, some information they might find useful. Uh, so, so there's a lot there, but it seems to me like, like the big themes that, that dominate the 20th century that historians, Adventist historians should be looking at. <clears throat> one, one of these big themes is the world church. You know, it's, it's not just an American church anymore. It's yeah. a world church. Mm-hmm. And uh, that creates all kinds of really big challenges. Uh, which historians need to try to help us understand. It's not just a matter of looking at how it stands today, but how, how we sort of evolved into this. And in some ways, <clears throat> in some ways we have the same problem that the Catholic church has. Uh, if you're a world church, can you be the exact same everywhere? Mm. Uh, and I think the Catholic church figured out as early as the counter reformation, uh, and you know the the uh, Spanish uh, conquest of the Indies, that uh, a, a world church cannot be exactly the same place everywhere in the world. It's going to be different. Mm-hmm. And if you try to make it exactly the same everywhere, what you will ha- what you will have is division. Um, 
you will have separation. Uh, so I, th I think a central question for, for Adventism today is what is the core that uh, is the defining uh, principles that, that make Adventism Adventism? And what is the uh, area of, of variety where different forms and different uh, you know, practices uh, can fit into? Uh, and I think that is a tension right now uh, facing uh, the, the church leadership. How tight do you try to govern it? Uh, and what is the risk of governing it too tightly? How loose can you allow it to be? And what is the risk of allowing it to be too loose? Mm. And I don't know what the answer to that question is, but it's, a, it's an important question for the current leaders. And it's a question uh, Adventist historians can start looking at as the church became a world church. Uh, because it's been becoming a world church now for many decades. Uh, and uh, you can see that when I was young in the overseas divisions, the union presidents were usually Americans. That ended even when I was young. Uh, the, the local population said, look, uh, we're going to have a president in Brazil who's a Brazilian, and we're going to have a president in, you know, uh, Kenya who's a Kenyan. Uh, we, we're gonna, we're gonna, we want to run our own church. The the transition into a world church uh, has been going on for quite a while. I think it's a really interesting theme to study. I think another really strong theme is that is is the stream of context. Uh, look look at the American church. Has it been immune from all of the social movements that have been sweeping the country in the last twenty years? Uh, yeah. Women's rights, um, gay rights. Um, I mean, I could make I, I could make a list. You know, is the is the is the American church today woke, or is it not? Or is it woke some places and not woke other places? Whatever woke means, by the way. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure. But uh, context. Hmm. Uh, the the advent of churches does not exist in a vacuum. Adventists read the same newspapers. They watch a lot of the same television shows. Uh, they eat at the same restaurants. Uh, they are part of American culture. Mm -hmm. And you can certainly see the impact of, of cultural change on the church. And that's something that needs to be studied, needs to be understood. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge for leadership. But historians have something to contribute to understanding that. Uh, and, and that's just one con that's just one example of context. Um, so I think that's a that's a second really big theme uh, for for Adventist historians to study. And, and then, of course, there's just the uh, internal politics of the church. Uh, every organization has politics. Uh, and politics is not a bad word. Right. It's a it's an ancient Greek word, the life of the city, the polis. Uh, so. Uh, there's politics in the Adventist church uh, and understanding that helps you understand why this person's in charge here and this person's in charge here and this hospital is built here and this institution becomes a university and uh, this institution changes its name. There, there are things going on and uh, these are uh, interesting and they're important to understand. And uh, I, I'm sure the archives are full of information that make that maybe the easiest of the, these three three areas to study. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but I, I think that uh, these are all big themes that deserve the attention of Adventist historians. Now, that's, that's great. I love that you bring up the, uh, the, the international context because that is the church today. We can't pretend that we're just a North American church uh, with any sort of primacy or, or priority at this point anymore. That, yeah, that disappeared over a century ago in the mid-1920s when there were more <laughs> Adventists outside of North America than there were inside North America. So uh, in terms of our historiography, we really need to catch up to that. And, you know, the, as I was listening to you, uh, Dr. McAdams, it reminded me of, uh, like, for example, all of the discussions in early Adventism on giving and systematic benevolence and tithe. Every one of them happened in the midst of a major financial recession, you know. So we like to talk about these discussions as if they, you know, just happened, but but they happened in context and, and appreciate that very much. You know, our, our time's just about up for today, but if you were to go back and do something different or maybe some, study something a little bit more in depth or change something, uh, I know that we're not into changing history, but, but you know, just as an act of self-reflection, you know, here you are in the midst of a very fertile time in the 60s and 70s with your own scholarship, working with other, you know, very bright minds that contributed to this sort of awakening in historiography. Um, any any self-reflection on anything you do differently or pay attention to a little differently or pursue in your, your own historiography? Well, I will say it was a, a privilege and in, in some ways an honor, certainly an inspiration to not only know, but be good friends with uh, Ron Numbers and Ron Graybill and Roy Branson and, you know, uh, you know, uh, John Butler, mm -hmm. uh, I, I could go on, uh, yeah. Gil Valentine, uh, Ben MacArthur, uh, it that this, this, or this generation of Adventist historians was, uh, an interesting group. And I think made really significant contributions. Uh, and I'm proud to have been a part of that. It's been, it was a good part of my life. Uh, <clears throat> I should point out that uh, Adventist history is not really my specialty. My specialty is British history. Yeah. And although from 1984 until today, I have not been making a living as a professional historian, I have still continued to read a lot of history. Mm. Uh, and I have read lots of history, uh, mostly European history, yeah. uh, mostly British history, but and a little bit of American history as well. So I know way more about that than I do about Adventist history. I don't really consider myself a, a, a significant Adventist historian. I wrote a couple of interesting articles in Spectrum. I think my look at uh, changing views of, in, of inspiration that, that was published at the end of the 70s was a, it, I think it's been the most cited thing I've written in, the, uh, in, in Adventist history. Mm -hmm. uh, but really most of my career as a historian has been uh, you know, uh, British history, European history. And in fact, I've made my living since uh, 1980, since uh, 1984, uh, doing other things. Uh, the books I've written are on education policy, uh, four books on education policy published by Columbia and Harvard. They are they have nothing to do with Adventism. Uh, so you, when you ask about second thoughts, um, I probably should have stayed. I probably should have spent more time continuing to pursue Adventist history. <laughs> uh, then, uh, then I, then I did, then I did. Uh, but, uh, I, I really have no, I really have no second thoughts. I've had a great life. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed everything I've done. 
uh, I've tried to make the world a better place wherever I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that uh, the, the, the most significant contribution uh, that I have made in the long run will be uh, what I have written because that will survive me. And uh, I, I do hope that uh, that in, in some ways maybe I can be an example to younger historians uh, to really focus on writing and publishing good Adventist history. Well, thank you, Dr. McAdams. We're going to put a wrap uh, for today's episode. Uh, we appreciate your, again, your scholarship and your time to to just share with us uh, very candidly about your own experience and, and uh, that has helped to guide you. Uh, so I want to thank our listeners for joining us. This is uh, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell with the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. Join us again uh, each month as we explore new contours in our Adventist past. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. He will not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by it. The Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast is part of the Adventist History Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts as well as additional content from this podcast by following us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to support this show or others on the Adventist History Podcast Network, please visit patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast. Enjoy the show.